Welcome to another episode of Behavioral Grooves Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply that to work and life. This week, we got to talk with Aaron Snyder, Director of Special Projects at Lexicon, one of the largest branding companies in the world. They are responsible for some of the most famous brands that we know of, such as Pentium, Blackberry, Swiffer, all from Lexicon. Tim, what I found interesting in our conversation was the amount of science that actually goes into a brand name. I like that, too, uh, as well as our discussion of all things mad cow disease. So mad cow disease, I will, I'm still surprised that we got on that topic. Branding. Branding. <laughs> yeah. We also talked about tension equaling attention, and I had a very fun conversation on cognitive load and our choice of toothpaste. Kurt, what are, what kind of a toothpaste guy are you? I am a crust guy. Yeah, I'm a Colgate guy. Oh, I guess we're, we're done. Yep. All all right. It's all over from here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, Tim, I also liked our, our uh, free-ranging discussion, uh, and we talked about some researchers, Zachary Tormula and Baba Shiv, which I thought was really interesting on yeah. some of the work that they have done, and again, how Aaron uses that in various different pieces. So... Uh, without further ado, Tim and I are excited to share with you our conversation with Aaron Snyder, PhD. So get ready to listen up and let's groove. Aaron Snyder, thank you so much for joining us on this Behavioral Grooves podcast. We are excited to um, to talk to you and. Um, and hear more about what your your life is like in applying behavioral sciences. Um, but let's start a little bit about uh, your company, if we if we could. Uh, Lexicon is not a household name, but Lexicon creates household names. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what the company does and how Lexicon is is putting behavioral sciences to use? Yeah, absolutely. Um, thanks for having me, guys. The uh, you know Lexicon is a very unique type of firm in the sense that we help with branding, but we help in a very specific way. If we're going to say it shortly, it would be, we use language to help you win in the marketplace. And really what that comes down to is being able to identify some of the, the best terminology that can support your brand, or if you're actually in the process of developing your brand, come up with the, the name that can sort of help you move forward. So Aaron, with that, um, in that language component, help us understand how do you use that language and what are some of the things that you and Lexicon bring to that, that element of, of working with language and how that fits into brands? Yeah, so I think that at its most basic, the, the guiding principle that we use when trying to develop a new brand name for one of our clients is to create a name uh, that is surprisingly familiar. So what do I mean by that? What we're really trying to do is create something noteworthy, something that when people see it or hear it, it captures their attention and it makes them makes them want to learn a little bit more. Uh, really, it's all about anticipation. So let me maybe give an example to make this a bit more concrete. I'll use some of our, uh, our well-known credentials to, to help do this. One of the, the best-known ones is Apple's PowerBook. And it's a very simple idea. You have these sort of familiar components the word power, everyone knows what something powerful is, and everyone knows what a book is. But when you combine them, it becomes, or at least when it was rolled out, uh, something that's surprising. Uh, it's a combination that's unusual. People want to know, wow, what makes a book powerful? And it's in that what is going to happen next with this product that you really kind of start the conversation with people. So that's kind of the most basic guiding principle we use with uh, developing effective language. 
So in the behavioral economics and behavioral science literature, there's this component of vividness, right? We remember things that are more vivid. And it sounds to a certain degree that what you're talking about is is a little bit of applying some of those principles. Is that something that you are focused in on or is that just a, a component that is a natural kind of output of, of the work that you're doing from a, that language perspective. Does that understand that question? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, absolutely. I, I don't, you know, we don't use the word vividness in the way that we describe what we're trying to do, but we talk about memorability, right? Because no one's going to ask for your brand by name if they can't remember it. And so using the sort of cognitive science construct of accessibility, what we try to do is make sure that in developing a name, you're going to be using words or word parts or concepts that are very easy for people to call to mind. You know, we're looking more for high frequency words as opposed to low frequency words. So uh, a wonderful example of this, if you were to sort of open the paper and this is something that I remember from my childhood. And there's a headline about the dangers of the, you know, the epidemic of bovine spongiform encephalopathy. You might say, wow, that sounds like it could be really scary, uh, really terrible. But you're probably not going to be able to go and uh, actually you know, tell anybody about that. When in reality, it's become sort of rebranded in a sense that's mad cow disease. Um, and so when you look at those different types of words that can go into it, you know, we know what mad is, we know what cow is, we know what a disease is. And being able to, in some sense, have those highly relevant words uh, makes the, the mental image that we create much more vivid and, and easier to access. Is it just dumbing down the terminology to make it simpler? Or is, <laughs> or is it more than that? Um, that, that's a great question. Um, it's, it's really, it, it's a, it's more nuanced than that. Dumbing down suggests that you're trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator and that you're in some sense losing some of, of what's important in the message. Now that's not to say that there isn't a time and place for very scientific terminology that can be very exacting, follow a very logical framework. But if what you're trying to do is create a message that can spread, that has the ability to make sense to someone who hasn't familiarized themselves with the jargon and steep themselves in, uh, in a, you know, a, a language that can be very difficult to, to work with, then I'd say that it's really going towards a different goal as opposed to really trying to dumb down the purpose of your original goal, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that does. That, that, and that's a, that's a great answer, actually. And I, I, I was hoping that you would have something stronger than just, yeah, we're just dumbing it down. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's interesting. We had another uh, podcast where we talked with Chad Emerson, who's doing very different work. He's working in treatment and various different things. But one of the components that he talks about is taking the, the very clinical language that is often used and taking that and converting it into street language to similar kind of effect of what you're saying. It's, it's, um, if you can't understand or it, it seems too technical in its very nature, uh, then it doesn't have that memorable component, nor does it have the impact that you want it to have. And yeah. so I think that language component that you're talking about, Aaron, is really important in this. And I think it's something that, um, uh, yeah, I'm glad it's not just dumbing it down, but it is really making it accessible uh, at the appropriate level. So, um, so Aaron, wanted to ask a little bit about you and just your background. So help us understand a, a little bit about how you got connected with Lexicon and uh, kind of this component, but then also just uh, behavioral sciences in general. How did you get interested in them and, and what's, your, what's your story? Yeah, um, happy to share my story. It's uh, a little bit of a, a winding path. Um, 
but I think that sometimes those those make the best stories. I uh, I came to Lexicon as a scientist. I I came here after doing my PhD in behavioral marketing, and before I did that, uh, which that sort of makes sense that you'd be going to a a marketing firm, a branding firm with a background like that. I was in something slightly different. I started my my undergraduate work in the, the hard sciences, taking many classes in biology, chemistry. My father uh, is a forest ecologist, so I remember all of my, my best childhood memories of being outdoors, taking the many hikes that we did, uh, and they'd always be punctuated with these sort of overly cerebral uh, talks about, oh, you know, being able to distinguish these pine trees from those pine trees and all of the interactions. <laughs> so awesome. yeah, that's that's very much where where I came from. And when I started taking these hard science courses uh, as an undergraduate, I began to realize that my interest naturally gravitated to how we work, um, how our brains work. And what I quickly found is that more often than not, um, they do work, but there are also surprising instances in which the brain and its machinery can break down in the way that we think, the way that we act. And, uh, and I really wanted to push that a little bit farther. And it was sort of on that trajectory that I ended up in a behavioral marketing program, which sort of gave me that freedom to say, Look, can we take all of these interesting insights from neuroscience and be able to begin applying them to the way that we, we behave in the world? So the behavioral marketing, um, for those people, our listeners, who don't understand what behavioral marketing is, can you help us, give us the 30,000-foot overview? I mean, I think most people understand marketing. Um, but what is the distinction for behavioral marketing? Yeah, great question. So behavioral marketing as a, a discipline, as a field of study, really focuses in many ways uh, on the psychology of the individual and how people perceive information. So uh, maybe if you were to imagine watching an ad, sort of what you're taking in about that that commercial on TV. Uh, it also deals with how we make decisions. You know, when we're standing there at the shelf and we're trying to decide between Crest or Colgate uh, among these myriad options, how Crest. we're actually going to, yeah, <laughs> go Crest one all the time. Just saying, I'm a Colgate guy. <laughs> oh man, we're gonna have a fight here. All right, I'm sorry, rudely interrupted you. Keep going here. All right. I'm happy to to moderate. If if you guys can get something out of this too, that's all the better. <laughs> um, so that's that's essentially what behavioral marketing is about. You know, the types of questions that that I asked and and answered, and that everyone tries to ask and answer in that type of program, very similar to something that you'd see in social psychology. How do we form attitudes? How do we use those attitudes to drive our behavior. That's fascinating. So, um, yeah, I, 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 that is, that is super cool. But I want to get back to, I want to get back to you uh, in, the, in the realm of lexicon. You've got this title called the Director of Special Projects. Talk about, man, a license to kill. That's, that's a sweet title. Um, and I, I remember when we were talking in San Francisco here a couple of weeks ago that, uh, that you just kind of beamed when, when you started talking about it. So, so can you tell us a little bit about some of the special projects you're working on and things that, that, are, um, that are important to Lexicon? Yeah, absolutely. So when David and I initially began talking and David is the the president and founder of of Lexicon. He's been he's been doing this far longer than I have, uh, I think over three decades uh, at this point in time. He uh, he was guest lecturing in one of the courses that I was TAing for. Uh, and I was immediately intrigued by the fact that people could be working at the level 
of language. And so started chatting with him. And what I really wanted to know is how his, uh, he had developed his approach to finding out which names were going to be most valuable for a given type of product, a given type of experience, anything. And what, uh, what really struck me is how similar his insights were to those that I was learning uh, sort of from the academic canon. And when I agreed to, to join Lexicon, I wanted to come in not just as a research individual. Of course, I, uh, that was one of my core competencies. You get very good at doing research in, uh, in a PhD program. But I wanted to, I wanted to add some, some more flavor to it. And one of the things that seems to be uh, always a, a curiosity for me is not just the answers to these philosophical questions that are asked in academia, but how you can begin to implement them. And so director of special projects really was a charge in order to not just be able to sort of bring some insights over and develop research programs around them to complement what was already going on here at Lexicon, but in some ways to act as, as a translator, to be able to say, look, these are the sort of intuitive pathways people are going to take in generating names, in working in the marketplace, but here's the science behind why that works. So really trying to connect the dots. And that's one of the, the wonderful things about such a, a broad title is that it allows me to work not only on the research team, but also on the creative development team. Uh, I've founded a group here called the Research and Innovation Group, where we're not only finding ways to take academic style insights and put them into our research, but we're really trying to change the way that we share information about names with people to help clients make the best decisions. So were you, uh, in some ways, as a translator, were you trying to help craft the marketing story or give credibility to Lexicon's marketing message insofar as, um, as saying, you know, there really is, there's good science behind this. We have, we have good work. We have a, we have a great uh, history uh, to speak to uh, great branding stories, but the way that we do it, the process that we use is uh, scientific. Is is that a fair way of saying it? You know, I think that um, there, there certainly has been some utility in me being able to say, look, not only have we developed these techniques in-house, but they match up with these sort of well-established techniques in the scientific literature. But I think that perhaps even, even more than that, it's being able to come in to Lexicon at a very interesting time. Technology is, um, just in my lifetime, really changed the way that we learn about the world and interact with the world. And what we're seeing now, um, one of the things that it's really amazing about trying to develop names is that there is a tremendous amount of trademark clutter out there. And in fact, that's one of the reasons that we employ our own in-house legal team here at Lexicon. Um, we have a trademark attorney and a set of paralegals that work underneath them just in order to be able to sort of vet the names that we've generated. And so that's just one example of how this sort of technology overlay has, has changed where we are. The number of apps that are developed on a even daily basis is staggering. And so what we need to be able to do is more efficiently look at a name and say, is this name legally available? That's what the trademark, uh, the legal team does. But then we need to be able to say, what is this going to do to the marketplace right now? If you launch it, you think about brands that we've created like Swiffer, Pentium, Sonos. When they came out, there was much less to compete with. But now we need to be able to efficiently move on, on insights. 
And so one of the things that I've been working on is developing more intuitive tools for understanding how effective a name is going to be and understanding that faster. So let me give you an example of, of what we're doing here. Great. Yeah, that sounds excellent. Please go ahead. So we, uh, we can now crowdsource uh, sort of, it's a way of collecting information from many people online very quickly. And so we can say, say that we have a client who's looking at 10 different names and they've already cleared maybe some, some preliminary degree of, of trademark and they don't know how to narrow that list down. Well, you can look at it and say, we can you know, go and ask people a series of questions using bipolar scales, uh, you know, traditional market research techniques. But in the end, people around the globe, um, whether they're in the US or in other markets, can look at a name and there's only so much that they can tell you about how innovative it is or how hardworking it is. And it becomes a difficult question for them to answer. And that's reflected in the types of responses that you get on bipolar scales. You often see that there are uh, what you could describe as a relatively flat response across names. That's not to say that people don't have any emotional response, but there isn't a lot of difference among 10 names. Now, what's, the, what's one way that we can tackle this? Well, another development technologically speaking, is that we can not only quickly analyze quantitative data, but we can begin analyzing something that's a little more qualitative. And so we engage people in conversations about these names through this crowdsourcing online platform so that for 10 names, we maybe talk to a thousand people who then are able to provide us with 60, 70, 80, thousand reactions in the forms of words, thoughts, associations. And we can go in with some of the, the sophisticated machine learning tools that are being developed these days and that we've fine-tuned for our own applications and say, here are the actual associations that people have with this name right now in the marketplace, which gives you a much richer understanding of what people are thinking about than simply numbers on a scale. So from that, and I want to go back to a, a couple other things that you just mentioned in here, but just on that last piece, so you're tapping into people's innate kind of reactions to a name versus having to develop a brand name and build that so you're, you can match a, an idealized uh, brand or culture with the name as opposed to building that um, over time, is that, uh, or, or maybe enhancing that building over time? Did I capture that, or is that is that uh, well, a statement? Um, yeah, interestingly, you can, uh, in some ways, sort of do both things at once, right? Because on one hand, you can look at the language that people attach to name A versus name B in the test set, and say, well, this name really is much closer to our positioning statement. Conceptually, it leads people in the right direction. But at the same time, you can look at that and say, well, you know, although this is consistent with our positioning statement, there's maybe a clear um, vacancy in the, the reactions people are having that we should try to fill. And that's something that isn't necessarily filled by the name, but maybe by supporting nomenclature, by the execution, the messaging that you do around it. So let me give a, a quick example here. Um, and I'll go back to in, an earlier credential of ours because it's something that I think is going to be well-known and easy for people to, to see what I'm talking about here. Okay, great. We did, yeah, we did uh, for Intel, they're Pentium processors. This is one of the, one of the best known brands in the world. Uh, for anyone who uses computers, it's probably uh, as well known as Coca-Cola is. And when we were generating this, now this was before I joined Lexicon, we were able to get it down to a short list 
of names. And in particular, we're looking at Pentium versus Optium. Now, both of these names have that IUM, the, the titanium, uranium, sodium ending. Again, going for that sort of familiar aspect. But when the testing came back on them, and I'll add that this is, you know, long before you could crowdsource or use machine learning. So this testing was done using focus groups um, and doing individual one-on-one -on -one interviews. So it took much longer. It cost quite a bit, um, both in terms of resources and time. The results were quite clear. Pentium suggested like Pentagon. It was very cold, clinical, hardworking. And when you're thinking about an ingredient for your computer, you want something that makes your computer go faster, work harder. That worked very well. And you got some of that with Optium because it has that same elemental ending to it. Yep. But you also get some optimism there. And when comparing these two names with each other, Pentium came out as kind of relatively cool, Optium relatively warm. So you might say, well, why don't you just go for the slightly warmer of the two? It's like you get both at the same time. But in fact, there was the issue of Optium might have sounded a little too, a little too fanciful, a little too much fun. And so better to go with something that's colder and harder working, but then think about in the execution ways that you can liven it up. And it was from that insight that Intel decided to go with the Blue Man group in order to popularize the Pentium processor once they began actually marketing it. <laughs> yeah, right, I remember. Had some energy. Wow, I mean, so, so taking the, the component that you're just talking about and understanding the, you know, the relative warmth or coldness, but then attributing and saying, okay, so from the naming nomenclature branding perspective, that goes one way, but how do we then fill in, as you mentioned earlier, those gaps? I think that's 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 really interesting, really fascinating. Thank you. Um, really cool, cool information. Um, and I wanted to go back. You had talked about the, the digital world and just the digital component of trademark clutter and various different things, but I wanted to ask, is there a difference in just um, branding for digital versus branding for a consumer product, again, thinking through how that works and, and uh, different things, but are there some differences in people, how people perceive a digital product or organization versus, say, a consumer goods product or organization? Any research that you know on that? Yeah, so um, we actually, we've done a, a fair amount of, of research internally on, on questions like that. So there are some, some surface level differences, which I'm happy to, to talk about, but the, probably the more important uh, thing is that this, the basic process is the same for the two. So real quick, when you're looking at something that might be more of a digital good versus a consumer good, you might in general want something that's more innovative in the, uh, in the digital space. And there are a few things that our research has uncovered as really supporting the idea of innovation strongly. And the most important thing you can do is create a word as opposed to opening the dictionary and finding one that already exists, something that has meaning built into it already. That's going to be seen as you know, uh, maybe more of a heritage word, something that's tried and true. That would work well for maybe a bank, something along those lines. Um, or if you know, your consumer good was more of a, a safety-oriented uh, type product, you'd want something more familiar. But when you begin actually creating compound words or playing around, um, combining word parts, rotating, clipping, substituting vowels or consonants, Yep. That's going to give people the impression of innovation. So that's at that kind of surface level. If you're thinking about a digital product, digital has to be on the 
bleeding edge of what's out there. You would want it to be more innovative. How much now? Oh, well, Aaron, yeah. I'm wondering how much do you think that is uh, a result of conditioning with, uh, with uh, companies in Silicon Valley specifically? I'm thinking about just sort of the, the playful nature of, of a lot of uh, brand names uh, since the you know, uh, late 1990s or early 2000s even um, that uh, were not out of the dictionary. You know, I mean, once we get away from Apple, you know, or uh, Microsoft, uh, the industry, you know, uh, got into a lot of playful names. How much, how much of that, uh, that needing to link the digital name to a really cool made up word uh, is, is conditioning and how much is, is just a reflection of the need to differentiate from say consumer packaged goods? Yeah, so um, I think that another way of, uh, of asking your question, so let me uh, pose it this way and, and see if I've, I've captured it, is to what extent does the, the actual name itself have to uh, follow some sort of cultural trajectory? There are all of these names coming out of Silicon Valley, so therefore um, it must be uh, these invented names out of Silicon Valley must be there versus how much is this more of an inbuilt process of what the brain is is really looking for in terms of signaling this yep. Yep. Yeah. yeah 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 that's a good way of putting it so yeah. help us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well it's a it's a very interesting question you know and it's an age-old question even in uh, in psychology you say well you know to what extent is this based on the person versus the situation that that person is. Can we you know, describe their behavior one way or another? And I think that what we can do is look back to the way that the brain really processes information uh, for some clues to, to help answer this. And what I think is most useful to consider here is that the brain has familiar concepts and concepts that are less familiar. And so when you're looking at something that is, that is familiar because it appears in a dictionary, you get this sense that you already know something about it. And so that satisfies a very basic human need, which is the need for safety and security. And so I think that that would suggest that at least on some level, this isn't completely culturally determined. Um, the, there is some lower level process in the brain that's saying, look, I recognize this, um, therefore it must not be very threatening. Otherwise I would recognize it. I would say, whoa, stay away from that. So I think that there are probably both of these are at play. Of course, you know, people who uh, get swept up in the excitement of Silicon Valley can maybe learn this um, as a bit more of a conditioned response. But I, I think that it's, it's safe to say that both are contributing to a certain extent. Yeah. Well, and I think that it, it's an interesting question. Um, and I do, as I've talked about before, do a lot of work with the pharmaceutical industry, and you look at just the branding that happens around pharmaceutical products, and you look at some of those names, and I know there's some other elements that go into that that are specific around FDA and other factors, but uh, the, the made-up names that are always uh, in, in those branding situations, and sometimes very difficult to pronounce and to do. And I'm wondering again, um, I, I don't know if you have any um, insight into that specific industry, but you wonder if it, if it isn't from some of the elements that you're talking about. Yeah. What are those underlying basic human responses to those things versus the, Hey, this is the way that we do it in our industry. And therefore we, we want to keep with that tradition um, even if that may not be the best way of moving forward. Yeah, it's not like I hear the name of a drug and think, oh, that sounds like a nice car brand. 
or, or vice versa. There is something distinct about, uh, about hearing the name of a car versus uh, the name of a, uh, a pharmaceutical product versus the name of a Silicon Valley startup. Yeah. I don't think there was a question there, Aaron. So. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe there was. <laughs> well, bit. there may not have been a question, but I have some thoughts. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I well, I think you're absolutely right that in pharmaceuticals um, there are intense regulatory constraints on on what can be used as a name because you don't want to suggest any you know similar effect from one drug to one that already exists on the market with maybe a, a similar word or word part or, uh, or phonetic structure in any way. So um, I, I think that that might be a little, uh, a little more fringe. However, when we talk about the name of a car or the name of a consumer packaged good, maybe a new app that you can download and put on your phone, the question becomes, well, how much of the utility of that name is in the, the context it's being presented in. And another uh, great example to, to consider here is the word Amazon. When we think about the Amazon, before amazon.com existed, you'd think of, well, this is you know, the rainforest, this is in South America. And as you get farther and farther down this this train of thought, you begin thinking, well, I don't know, there are so many ways to, to die there. There are parasites. Uh, there are, you know, <laughs> oh, they could, they could, and they, oh, there's deforestation happening that's threatening the larvae. And it's just like this, um, there are all of these potential negative associations that uh, you might say, wow, we should never consider something like that for a brand name until you put it into the right context, the context of the world's largest bookstore, which um, I guess the world's largest online bookstore is what Amazon was when it launched. Right. And suddenly it makes sense. And I think that there's something really, really beautiful in that example, which is that when people are looking at something new and they're trying to make sense of it, they heard about the new largest online bookstore and it's called Amazon, they're not going through this um, overly logical, cerebral train of thought saying, well, is there malaria in the bookstore? No, I don't think that that's a very good name. Um, I don't think that I want to get books from there. What they're doing is they're just looking for a single connection that can help build their intuition forward. And if you hit upon this idea of diversity, specifically biodiversity, there are, you know, more species of animals, of plants, um, of everything in the Amazon. And that gives you the idea that, wow, I can get any book that I need. So people are just looking for some, some hint of what they can anticipate from that experience. So the contextual yeah. framing of that. And so it's almost this priming um, based upon the context of what you're doing, that which then leads to the associations that you want it to lead to. If I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that? Yeah, exactly. And um, and part of what we do here uh, at Lexicon when we research a name uh, is try and look at the name not only in the context that it's going to be used in, but we also um, will ask about it in a few different. Um, contexts that are conceptually distinct but have some parallels. Uh, so you, you might say, well, okay, well, what's, what's an example of that? One of our recent credentials is Lucid Motors. And when they came to us before they were Lucid, they were looking for a name to put on the back of a car that was going to be Tesla's major competitor. And they wanted something that didn't sound exactly like a car. It sounded maybe more like an experience, something that would, that would be memorable um, and visceral. And so in the research, we looked not only at, well, how does this perform as the name of a car, you know, a thousand horsepower 
Tesla killer, um, is you know, how some people talk about this oh, thing. Wow. Um, and so it's, it's a really impressive vehicle um, that has, you know, all uh, electric setup and the interior is modeled after sort of business class seating on, on airlines so that you'll be able to be as comfortable to really experience driven as a car. So we looked at it not only as the name of a car, but also as, well, what would people think of this name uh, if they heard that Apple was going to try and apply this to one of their projects, maybe even an Apple car. There were rumors of that going around quite a bit um, when, when this project was going on. And then you can push it even a little bit farther and say, well, what if this was the name not of a, a car project at all, but of some new artificial intelligence startup that's trying to develop the, the next best class of algorithm. And so by looking at these sort of conceptually parallel situations, you can see how well the name performs and, uh, and whether it is believable uh, at sort of its core on what you need it to deliver. Interesting. Very interesting. Wow. Mm -hmm. Uh, go, go ahead, Kurt. Or yeah, we're 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 fumbling over who gets the next question. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Aaron, we met at the Behavioral uh, Science and Marketing Summit uh, in San Francisco a few weeks back. Wondering what drew you to that conference in specific, and what did you get out of uh, what did you come away with other than meeting a couple geeks from Midwest that you're now on a podcast with. <laughs> Um, well, uh, as if that wasn't enough to get out of the conference. Um, you're too, you're too <laughs> kind. You're too kind. But thank you. You can keep adding on to that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess coming from from academia, I I have a you know this strong interest in, in asking and answering questions, but I also have a, a sincere interest in how the sort of philosophy around those those questions and the learning applied. And for me, it's extremely gratifying to be able to take all of this time that I've invested learning, um, you know, in the, the academic space about these concepts and apply them here at Lexicon. And what I really wanted to see is how other people we're doing this. Uh, I think that was the, the driving curiosity in going to the behavioral sciences summit. So, so oh, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, finish your thoughts. Well, sorry about that. Yeah, all I was going to say is that what really excited me is not only that, um, you know, I saw there were many talks where people described the, the great strides being made in their organizations specifically. Of course, this is fantastic um, that you know people are applying this that you're seeing uh, increases in productivity you're seeing increases in how much people are saving for retirement and otherwise but I think that the the biggest thing for me is being able to see that I'm not the only one trying to translate the insights from academia into things that everyone can use something more tangible, that there are other people working on that. Um, and that was, that was the, the most empowering thing that I got out of it. Yeah, that, that is cool. That is really cool. And um, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that. This, this translation thing comes up quite a bit in our discussions. Um, could, speaking of academia, though, you've got your PhD in behavioral marketing. What, what work was the most influential um, in your uh, pursuit of behavioral marketing, or, or maybe you could speak to what work is most uh, important to you and influential in your current work at uh, Lexicon. Yeah, um, it, it, it's an excellent question. I think that if, if I was to identify a specific area of work or maybe even just an idea that, that I've found most compelling, it's this idea of tension. And you see that in at Lexicon and this idea of 
creating names that are surprising yet familiar. But something that uh, I really, really began to realize the importance of in my, my own work, uh, my dissertation work, which was about ambivalence. Now, ambivalence is kind of a, a $10 word. Um, but what it really is, is how do people process information that conflicts just a single area of the brain, like that piece of chocolate cake, um, there's really not a whole lot to be done. You're motivated to go for it. It's, it's simple. But things become much, much more interesting when you begin to see a battle of different parts of the brain. Uh, the left brain fighting the right brain, the approach fighting the avoidance motivations. And so it's in that, that tension that all of the really interesting things happen because tension is what recruits your attention. So, yeah. so you will actually look more at things where there is conflict. Going back to that Amazon example, if you read all five-star reviews for a product, how much time do you spend deciding on it? Probably not very much. You'll just buy it. If you read all one-star reviews, how much time are you going to spend deciding whether to buy it? Again, probably not very much. You'll just move on to, to the next one. But it's when you get a mixture of positive and negative that all of a sudden you want to process more information. You are more invested in the decision. You're much more curious. You're trying to anticipate whether the positives are going to outweigh the negatives. And that works not only for positives and negatives, but for any type of, of tension system that so exists. Eric, who's doing the research? Or is there, um, are there people doing research in this area of tension that you would recommend for uh, Tim or myself to, or to, to or our listener to, to kind of go out there and, and understand a little bit more about this? Yeah, I think um, probably what I would, what I'll, I'll do with this opportunity is I'll pitch a couple of the professors that I was lucky enough to collaborate and work with while I was at Stanford doing my PhD. And uh, if you're going to be looking for tension that exists in, in terms of how people form attitudes, look at positives and negatives. Zachary Tormala has done a tremendous amount of work in the attitude ambivalence literature. Um, and that's really where, um, where my dissertation lives as well. And uh, to give you just sort of the, the 10 second overview of what I looked at with, with my dissertation, I was trying to bring in this idea that we know there are well-established valence biases that one bad apple can spoil the barrel, um, as well as something that's a little lesser known, positivity offset. This idea that in the absence of information, we are optimistic as human beings. We anticipate something good to happen. And I tried to take those two biases and... Um, do an exercise almost in cartography to map out where those inflection points are in ambivalence, where you're going to see people spending the most amount of time sort of reading through reviews and trying to figure out what's going on there. So Zach Tormala, great person for attitude ambivalence. And how do you spell his last name? It's T-O-R-M-A-L-A. All right, fantastic. And then if you were going to look for some, some papers that really talked about this conflict between emotion and cognition, uh, you know, what we want to do versus what we should do, there, there's some uh, really, really interesting papers by Baba Shiv. And his name is spelled S-H-I-V. And he's just a, an incredible outside-the-box thinker. In one of his, uh, his early contributions, what he did is brought people into the lab and gave them a very simple task to remember a number while they were completing some other, uh, 
other aspects of the study. And then at the end of the study to go down to the, uh, the researcher at the end of the hallway in a different room and tell that researcher what the number was uh, before they were asked to leave and, and paid. And when they got to the end of the hallway um, and delivered this, this two-digit number that they were keeping in their head the whole time, the, the researcher said, hey, thank you so much. Appreciate that number. Let me, uh, let me give you your payment. And also, you know, we have some, some leftover chocolate cake and fruit salad here. Feel free to take one of these uh, as, as a thank you. Uh, an additional thank you for your participation. Oh, yeah. and I've heard of yeah. this. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, this is good. Uh, it, it's one. It's a wonderful study. People, of course, you know, looking at it, said, "Well, you know, I love that chocolate cake, but you know, I'm here with the with the researcher, a scientist. I should probably make the right decision." And they overwhelmingly chose the fruit salad because it was the healthier of the two options. But there was another group of people who were also participated and they didn't remember a two-digit number. They were asked to remember a seven-digit number. And those people, when they got to the end of the hallway and they gave that number to the researcher and the researcher thanked them and told them that they could select one of these, suddenly people were much more likely to take that chocolate cake. And this is because they were experiencing cognitive load. They were trying to remember the seven-digit number, and they had exhausted themselves doing so. So they didn't have the, the cognitive wherewithal to say, oh, you know, I should really go for the healthier option, even though I want the chocolate cake. They just took the chocolate cake. Yeah, that willpower depletion component. Yeah. So, yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, Aaron, so, we're, we're yeah. running... Um, Getting close to time here. And so before we end, I just want to ask if there was one thing that you could share with our podcast listeners on saying, what, what, how would you apply behavioral science into their life or their work that you think would make an impact for them? What, would, what, what kind of hints or valuable kind of insight do you think you could give to, to the people listening to say, hey, Think about this next time you're uh, you're out and about or whatever it is that you're doing. I sounded very Minnesotan there, didn't I? Oh, out yeah. and about. Yeah, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> no, no apology necessary. We've got to keep this podcast entertaining as well. I think that if there was if there was a single a single thing that I would I'd offer, it wouldn't be uh, necessarily the the output of any study that I've ever read, but I, I try and go a little simpler than that because I think that when you're, you're trying to implement change, there's a tendency to overthink the solutions, to over-engineer them, when in reality, the, the most elegant solutions are, are often the simplest. And when I say the simplest, what I mean is that you can kind of look to yourself as a guide. And so if we go to this example of emotion versus cognition, the chocolate cake versus the fruit salad, we all know that we want the chocolate cake. And we all know that we probably should take the healthier option. And in any situation, if you have the ability to sort of just quickly and without overthinking it, parse what you want to do versus what you think you should do, I think that you're going to see you'll have a a much clearer idea of how other people might feel in that same situation. And then you can look at the situation for some insights about whether you should go with one over the other. Is this a, a stressful taxing situation? Maybe you want to play a little bit more on the emotional chocolate cake side of the spectrum. Is it something where people really are investing a lot of thought already? Maybe it makes sense to sort of play to their ideals uh, with something that's a little more cognitive, a little more cerebral. Yeah, that's, um, that's a really good thought to, um, to, to leave uh, the listeners with and, and us as well. But of course, 
We're not just going to leave it there, Aaron. We're going to ask one more question, and this is the imagine yourself winning the Nobel Prize and and you're walking up onto the stage and there's going to be some theme music played that you have selected that is your theme music. What would be your theme song? Oh, that's, uh, uh, that's a tough one, given, given the context. But if, uh, if I could have any song and it was, it was my day to hear it, yeah. I think what I'd, what I'd really love to hear is Big Rock Candy Mountain. <laughs> I love it. Any particular version of it? Is there uh, any particular uh, artist that uh, you think really? Uh, I think just the original. I think it was Harry McClintock um, who who did the the first recording of it probably a uh, hundred years ago at this point in time. Of course, it was popularized on on the uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. where I was thinking. So. This is where, where most people know it from. But I, I love it because it's a reminder to me that the good life can be simple. <laughs> wow. wow. Very, very good. Those so, are, th that's a great closing thought right there. It is. So, um, Aaron, thank you. We appreciate it. All of... Uh, the behavioral groovers out there listening to this uh, appreciate the insights. Really, really interesting stuff. So I'm, I am very happy that we had this chance to talk, and thank you. Yeah, thanks very much, Aaron. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, a pleasure to, to further the conversation with you guys. It's been fun. All right. Take care, Aaron, and uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll be in touch and talk to you uh, moving forward. Welcome to another grooving session where Tim and I get to groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our heads. So, Tim, initial impressions from Aaron's talk. I want to talk about toothpaste. <laughs> toothpaste? Toothpaste. You know, this is just going to get us into an argument. <laughs> Well, we are you are totally wrong on your choice of toothpaste. <laughs> okay, aside from brand, what uh, you know, we we took some time to look into how difficult the decision is to to make around what kind of toothpaste we use in 2017 compared to 20, to 1990. So that's 27 years ago, right? right? How many how many brands of Colgate adult toothpaste were there in 1990? I think from our research, it was two. Yeah, and how about in 2017? 17. 17, that's just Colgate adult toothpaste. Kids <laughs> toothpaste went from one option in 1990 to 10 options in 2017. See, but here is the real challenge for you because you Colgate is like only 17 in 2017. <laughs> but that's my What brand. about Crest adult? <laughs> Crest Adults started with two in 1990, but look, in 2017, how many do they have? I think they went to 48. 48. Think of the decisions that I have to make. <laughs> All right. How about kids? How about, how, about, how about the Crest kids? All right, one to 13. So in, on par with, well, uh, with Colgate, but, but wow. Just think of the, the, the difference that that makes when you walk into your Target or your grocery store or wherever it is that you pick up your toothpaste and the actual decisions that you have to now go through in choosing, do I want it with whitener, with baking powder, with it's too fluoride, much. no fluoride, all of those. Well, we, in those 27 years, we went from having nine brands on the shelf to having 36 brands on the shelf. Oh. So it, it, it's, a, it's a tremendous burden. It's a tremendous cognitive load that we all face. And I think the work that Aaron and Lexicon is doing is trying to, to match up how things that are easy for us to grasp can we pair with things that are interesting that, that hit our memory, that hit our brains with a little bit of sugar. And we say, I want a little bit more of that. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting, uh, this whole concept of the, the amount of choice that we have. And we talked about this in one of our behavioral grooves meetups where we were talking about choice and mm -hmm. the element of choice and how we always think, or we, not always, we tend to think that more choice is usually better when in fact more choice does not always equal better. Yeah, I, I, I would certainly want to call attention to the work that Sheena Yengar has done 
from uh, Chicago, the University of Chicago, on, on choice. She's just done some really fascinating stuff on how too many options make decisions very difficult. Right, and I think there's this belief out there uh, in many circles, and sometimes that circle is in uh, corporate America, in their decision to expand the product line because we are offering somebody who wants to have glistening gel particles in their crust versus just plain <laughs> fluoride toothpaste. Uh, and that's a good thing on their part. And to a certain degree, I think there's some other factors that go into this about trying to capture shelf space and all of those other things that go into it. But from the consumer perspective, from the person who actually has to buy that product, whether it be toothpaste or olive oil or whatever else it is, I don't think that makes it a better world. It's not. I think the HR folks are uh, fall prey to that as well, feeling like, boy, we need to offer a lot of options to a, to um, to uh, support the diverse environment, uh, the diverse people that are working in our organization, especially large enterprises, when that's not necessarily always the best way to go. And we fall prey to this, I know I fall prey to this uh, oftentimes in just thinking about some of those uh, motivational components. And I would love to be able to offer individualized motivational programs to each individual. Yeah. but. What you don't want to have happen in that is providing people, uh, in that instance, this plethora of choice options around that. Uh, I would love to have an individualized motivational program that is customized based on some things we know about people, but that they have a limited number of actual choices that they need to make. Because we still like choice. We, we still we, do yeah. like choice. Yeah. And I think there's a big thing in just thinking about having only one choice versus having uh, a few choices versus having a multitude of choices. And I think on either spectrum, on the ends of the spectrum, I'm hoping that that is uh, one thing that we can start to avoid and that we can get to a small number of select choices that actually give people real value. That are relevant, right? Relevant. relevant. And, yeah. I, and, and again, we're talking about internally at organizations, which is a lot of times what we talk about. Yeah. Uh, Blending the decision and the choice aspect in with something else that Aaron talked about that really caught my interest was his tension equals attention. <laughs> I thought, first of all, it's clever, right? Yep. Tension equals attention is so great. And 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 this idea of, of choice got me thinking about a product that I was involved in developing uh, some years ago uh, that that allowed people to uh, salespeople to select their own goals. Yes, and and there's a risk element of that, which adds tension because if they selected too high uh, and they didn't perform at the level that they that they self-selected, they got nothing. And if they overperformed at the level that they selected, they only got the the reward at the level that they selected. So there's no in, there's there's no reward for sandbagging or for shooting too high. And that tension creates attention so that it really gets them to think about, well, exactly how well can I do? And, and it's, a, it's a tremendous tool that engages more than, more than half, almost 60% of all, of all the sales reps at a very high level. And I think one of the key things that you're just talking about from that tension that arises from that is the amount of effort that then goes into thinking what can I actually do? And so that targeting or call mm -hmm. planning component, really taking that into consideration, taking into consideration all these other factors because they have the attention from that tension. Ex <laughs> I reversed it. Did that you was, see was, how I did that? That was so clever of you. That was so, oh man, you're just... <laughs> You're just flying. Oh boy! I think this might end early today. Uh, okay. Well, well, let's let's talk about music then. Oh, all right. We're going music again. Yeah, we gotta talk about music. Oh my gosh! This is always our the be between yeah, yeah. between toothpaste and music. I don't know how we continue <laughs> doing this week after week after week. Okay. So who, who's on your playlist this week? Well, 
actually, my playlist, as always, is very eclectic. Uh, I know last time we talked, you were talking about uh, the local scene yeah. and a variety of di different things like that. My favorite, and I don't know if I mentioned this already, and if I did, I, I apologize, but one of my favorite local artists is Dessa. And Dessa is a fantastic performer. Started off kind of with POS and and uh, some other rappers and kind of was known as a rapper. But on her last few albums, if you listen, I mean, she her voice is just unbelievable and uh, really brings a whole new dimension to kind of interface of that rap and melodic and really soulful type of music. Agreed. She Her vocal stylings are tremendous. Her production is uh, always interesting. It, it's always engaging to, to listen to her and, records. And she is just a fascinating person. If you ever get to listen to an interview from her, fascinating. I mean, oh, she cool. is she is a polymath. She is interested in, she writes poetry. She has a couple published poetry books. She does teaches. She does a variety of other things around uh, a number of different areas. And uh, it's just amazing. And I loved her. She would take uh, some of the ways that she would write her songs. Is she would take her iP um, her her phone iPhone into a closet and just record on the phone the song as she's you know thinking through the the different pieces of it. And that was what she used to, to record and and do her songs. That's so Tim, you, what's going on in in your musical? genre taste right now i'm all about dan auerbach and the black keys oh yeah there you go. yeah you know i mean just it's, it's a driving sound but it's a great sound it's a really well developed really well thought out sound it's very intentional dan is a very uh very creative guy and he He's, he works with a bunch of, of different artists. He's producing four different records right now. What? And, and touring with um, with a bunch um, uh, of, of different artists right now called the Easy Eye Tour. And I, I think it's just fascinating that he is taking his creativity and sharing it so generously with, with other artists, respecting their sound, but bringing this tremendous creativity that he has to uh, producing each of their records. Well, I know that generosity uh, is reciprocal, so re reciprocity. Oh my reciprocity. God. Reciprocity. <laughs> Once again, I stumble over my words. And uh, with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign off before I stumble anymore. So thank you, listeners. And uh, if you enjoyed this, uh, even if you didn't, please make sure you uh, listen to us again because we get better. Promise.